0: From Chicago, welcome to 3Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry.
1: All the small to medium uh, organization who can barely afford a one printer and two operators to work uh, with that, and they would like, how can we make um, make our parts uh, quickly and reliably? Uh, what are some of the quick to dos uh, in order to get us started?
0: That was Yash Josh is a process engineering consultant at EOS North America. In this role, his primary responsibility is to provide guidance and support to EOS consumers in effectively implementing AM technology within their organizations. Before we get started, head over to www.3degreescompany.com and subscribe to the podcast. Remember, you can listen to the show anywhere you download your podcast, including Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or Stitcher. Also, if you or your company are looking for materials qualification or general AM support, reach out to the team through our website or via email at info at 3degreescompany.com. Yeah, Ash, thank you so much for joining the show today excited for the conversation we got to uh meet in person a couple of weeks ago at the uh, NIST working group on data management but um before we get to that um I like to start out with all the guests on uh more personal level so kind of where where were you born kind of what were some of those early days like in terms of getting you on the path towards additive manufacturing
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Mike, for having me. It was nice meeting you at an IST workshop as well. Um, my name is Yash Parikh and I am currently a process engineering consultant with uh, EOS North America and I'm based out of uh, Austin, Texas. Um, I was born and raised uh, in a city called Valsad in the state of Gujarat back in India. So uh, growing up, uh, my both parents were professor. So I have seen them uh, uh, do the hard work of learning every day and teaching next day. And I, I have seen them uh, completed their PhDs uh, during my growing years. So I had a big influence of um, having a mentor in house and both both were linguistic professors. So they taught languages. So I had to emphasize on um, making sure that my pronunciations and everything is correct in that particular language. And those were Gujarati and Hindi languages. Uh, and I have an elder brother, so who was like five years older to me. And um, while growing up, he, he ventured to become a mechanical engineer. And that kind of influenced me to, um, to to take the path of mechanical engineering. So while growing up, those were the days where I had al- almost like fascination of uh, learning more about machineries and stuff like that. Because my brother used to bring those parts, uh, which were back then made on lathe machine. So he used to show me that. Uh, so this is the uh, base material, and this is what we did with that. So kind of machining or machinery had that sort of influence on me uh, while growing up.
0: So it's kind of seeing those parts like in person, like oh, like there's there's yeah, more yeah. there's more than meets the eye here, like it, <laughs>
1: exactly, exactly. Yeah. And then uh, some of some of the other fascinating aspects that he shared on mechanical side of things. Back then, uh, the computers were not that. Uh, powerful so uh, so, so that so the calculations were needs to be uh, done by hand mostly so so I have seen him like referring to the log books and stuff like that uh, design handbook uh, to 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 get into all the design calculations for spur gears and whatnot so that those those had my uh, you know excitement uh, going to learn more about engineering.
0: And what was that that process like? Do you start kind of thinking about engineering in high school or was that more as you got into college and and university?
1: More. more. So in India, you have similar uh, education structure as US. And then after your 10th, you choose either you want to go with uh, the mathematics background or biological side of uh, stream. So I've chose to become... Uh, engineer. And during those growing years, I had influence. As I, as I said, my brother was five years older to me. So when when I was in about my eighth or ninth grade, he was uh, already starting uh, with his engineering. So I was uh, mentored uh, greatly by him, actually.
0: Awesome. So during and
1: that 10th, 11th uh, timeframe.
0: And so when you started university, you're doing presumably mechanical engineering. Mechanical. With- yes. Was it what you expected? Or no, was no, it-
1: <laughs> no, no. First, first, first year was completely different because now you got the a thermal and heat transfer and and all of those which we, which is which is something you you have not expected. More sort of a manufacturing side of thing. You 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 were thinking for um, from mechanical perspective. I was like, oh, this is manufacturing focus no this is more sort of a heat thermal fluid mechanics um so it took me a while to to figure out that it, it's a it's a it's a vast diverse uh, field within mechanical engineering itself okay. but eventually I adapted uh, graduated uh, back in 2008 with my bachelor's from university of Pune okay. and then uh, with my growing love for manufacturing, I actually pursued a master's in India um, from a university called VTU. Uh, it's in Bangalore. And then I, I specialized during the time in SIM, computer integrated manufacturing. So I stood university first rank during my master's. Um, had a one year project with Larson and Tubro Kobatsu, l in Bangalore uh, as a part of my thesis work.
0: And did you have a, I mean, your, your parents being professors, your brother being in the, like in the university, like, were you always kind of drawn to do more the, kind of like the academic track and like kind of continue on or like, it sounded like you had some pull to go into industry as well, right?
1: That, that, that's a great, that's a great question, actually. Um, and that actually happened Uh the moment I completed my one year internship during my master's and the project that I was working on was on an excavator's capability improvement, uh, the team actually offered me a, me a job uh, then and there that if you would like to continue working on the project post your completion, uh, please feel free to let us know. Um, and at that time, I had a discussion with my father about whether to go for uh, academic uh, side of things or stay in industry. And then uh, he said, uh, why not to try uh, going into academics for a few years? And then I made a choice to be an assistant professor. Um, I was about 23 years old when I was assistant, assistant professor in uh, one of the universities in Pune, India. And back then there was no requirement to teach for undergraduate to have a PhD at that time. So I, I chose that path.
0: how do you like teaching?
1: Oh, it's absolutely fun. It's a pleasure. Um, I, I really love teaching uh, it's something that um, I learned from every uh, interaction that I have with a diverse population and, and it, it enhances your understanding in my opinion so teaching something requires you to understand something first in order to teach somebody else so so I think that that's uh, that's a blessing to have
0: and so around this journey like what, when did you come into contact with added manufacturing?
1: Great question. Again, when I when I, um, when I was teaching um, and I've taught for five years in India, and over the course of five years, I have changed a couple of institutions. So within these two institutions, I have taught roughly about 10 plus subjects. Uh, and these are undergraduate, graduate level courses, like you know, 300, 400 level courses, 600 level courses. Uh, one of the course was product design that I actually taught. And during the product design, there was a rapid prototyping. Um, And back there, uh, it was like, okay, you need to do a reverse engineering and to get quick results, uh, you have to uh, adapt to 3D printing to get uh, your rapid prototyping uh, models done. And at that time, about 2012, 2013, I I, I was like, okay, this is a a really interesting uh, uh, technology. So that was my initial... And I did not know that it was called additive manufacturing back then. I had an impression of not even 3D printing, just rapid prototyping. Uh, that's what I heard back then. So when when I was, um, I was trying to uh, search for different universities to pursue my PhD, I had no inclination to go into additive to do my PhD. It was more about mechanical engineering. And what I liked was product design. So it was like, okay, I'm looking for positions in these labs. And then interestingly, it happened that I I got a mentor who who was uh, willing to take me and and, and challenge me with the additive manufacturing aspects. And that happened because I worked on a project which had uh, curriculum development on 3D printing. Uh, It was a position of our research associate when I joined the Texas A&M College Station. and then that kind of project led me to uh, be more excited about 3D printing.
0: And so what, what sorts of printing were you primarily looking at? Was it polymer? Was it metals? Was it it was
1: most, uh, so the first six months that I worked on, it was a broad overview of all the seven techniques. Of additive manufacturing, not particularly um, um, pinpointing anyone, but I got a broad overview of okay, this is this is what the umbrella looks like of additive manufacturing. And then I I was excited to work on um, on the laser powder bed fusion actually because we recently Texas AM had recently acquired a Renishaw AM450 and they were looking for graduate students. So I was like, okay, um, I'll be the one who will be doing research and, on this platform. So it happened eventually that I was uh, I was uh, influenced by that sort of an external factor as well to choosing which technology within additive I would be uh, working on.
0: And what were you like operating the machine? Were you like yeah. doing we, all we, sorts of stuff? Uh,
1: so initially we were not allowed to operate the machine. All we were able to do was prepare your CAD geometries uh, convert STLs and send it to the operator and he would be doing everything. But as we grew up in, in this uh, position and when you're like a third year, fourth year PhD candidate, uh, you have been allowed to play around with the machine a little bit more. Uh, but yeah, during that time also COVID hit, so there was a severe limitations uh, as to how many students can touch the machine, highly touch surfaces whatnot. So we had our... Uh, fair share of experiences on, 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 handling machine in different conditions as well.
0: And what was your ultimate kind of research and and, and so when
1: I, yeah, when I started, I, I was given an uh, interesting problem is to create a functionally graded structure from a single alloy using laser powder bed fusion. So at that time, um, is uh, Ryan DeHoff, and uh, others have looked at these phenomenon back in 2015, actually, when I saw his paper. I was like, okay, those are some initial literature review that I did. Um, it was a site-specific property that they investigated using uh, LPPF. And then sort of that took my, um, took my interest to a different level as to, let us understand the PV uh, plot and understand the properties that you can get within the good um, zone uh, without going into lack of fusion or any other defects, and explore what hardness, tensile strength, and uh, fatigue properties, and creep resistance and whatnot you can get. And can you stack those then on top of each other using uh, process parameter manipulation? So it it eventually took me a year, two years, to to get to a journey of exploring this PV space, uh, and then eventually choosing Uh, correct parameters, correct properties for end application.
0: And so with that, I mean, maybe you want to talk a little bit about that experience because I think it mirrors a lot of what happens in industry, maybe not so much from kind of functionally graded, but uh, a company gets a machine in, they're trying to go through the process of figuring it out, doing... Design of experiments, trying to capture like what are we measuring? Is it tensile? Is it fatigue? To try and make a decision. So like, what are some of where where did you start in terms of that journey? In terms of trying to figure out, okay, how do I even structure like what what the and get to the question that I want to answer
1: yes 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 and that that's a common uh, question that happens with all the small to medium uh, organization who can barely afford a one printer and two operators to work uh, with that and they would like how can we make uh, make our parts uh, quickly and reliably uh, what are some of the quick to-dos uh, in order to get us started and that comes other than down buying to, an eos other machine, than right? buying eos <laughs> machine of course uh, and uh, uh, and other than got to get the uh, plug
0: in andy's going to be <laughs> mad if you don't get
1: it <laughs> yes absolutely and uh, other than other than using the oem supplied uh, oem supplied highly dense parameters so sure. what happens is what happens is you have to start uh, looking at the end product uh, from a perspective of additive manufacturing So what happens is mostly when you're looking at conceptualizing a product, when you purchase a machine, you have something on mind that, okay, this is what I want to print um, and conventionally produce. uh, These are the XYZ properties of it. Sometimes what happens is um, your realistic expectations um, cannot be met with additive uh, if you're just comparing apples to apples in terms of property values. So you have to look around play with processing conditions just to see that what are the design allowables given for this particular uh, this particular material this particular product that you are trying to trying to build so most of the time it comes down from starting from the least value and try to explore how can you go to the max value of that property it could be tensile say 700 uh, to 900 uh, mpa something like that and you try to reverse engineer and say that, okay, with this initial DOE, I was able to get up to 700 um, value of tensile strength. Uh, Can I play around and put more laser power or tune down a little uh, on a scan speed? So you have to start with something in mind. You have to fixate your um, starting point on one single property. You cannot manipulate like three, four parameters at the same time. That would lead to chaos. That would lead to unknown uh, territories that you're heading into.
0: Right, and for sure. And it's prioritizing the those parameters, right? Because stencil that strength is, is one measure, but is one is measure another, and like there's a absolutely hardness and others that like it may not, may not. strength ultimately may not matter exactly. Versus another, like, True. It has to be a minimum, right? It can't fall apart. But like as long as it's you can look at it and say, okay, it stands up, but what are your other priorities? And and for some people, like that may be challenging.
1: That is true. That is correct. And um, yeah, I mean, so those sort of uh, experience of working in a different manufacturer's um, system, say, Renishaw really is uh, what I've been trained on. When you switch on to a different OEM and now you're operating an EOS machine, um, things get change pretty quickly you you need to know what are the different aspects of processing condition that are that are changed here so um, can I say that can I fully replicate what I have found out on Renisho am450 on say m290 mm-hmm. it would take me uh it would take me uh, a while to to reproduce these results exactly
0: do you think that's yeah. a good thing or a bad thing for the industry
1: um there is no there is no straightforward answer to it because each, at the end of the day, each manufacturer uses their proprietary settings and their proprietary uh, third party. Mm-hmm. It could be a third party uh, laser or or a system like a build frame, uh, gas flow. So so what happens is is in ideal world it should have been like that. That what I've operated on, say a four hundred watt machine. A different 400 watt machine using the same laser profile should give me a, a same value, but it it eventually it doesn't happen. So, so it's bad that it's not happening like that, um, in my opinion. And that's how standards and uh, other certification bodies come into this picture. So they they are like, how can we make it uh, more easy for for operators who are switching jobs or somebody who is. Uh, buying a new set of machines because every couple of years there's a revision in the machine and companies are in narrative uh, going out of business and getting merged with another company so they are producing a, a combined machine with two or three different uh, oems coming together and stuff like that so
0: and so, what, um, so you finished your PhD. What was your thinking after that? Did you want to go back to teaching? Did you want to go into industry? What was your, your thought process?
1: So, uh, during my PhD, I was uh, able to do an internship at Oak Ridge National Lab uh, manufacturing demonstration facility. So, um, that has played a vital role in me choosing to go into research lab slash um, industry because uh, I worked on a binder jetting. Uh, during that uh, four months of internship uh, along with laser powder bed and WAM uh, wire arc additive um, and, and I was fortunate to meet a couple of greats in the field. Um, Suresh Babu is one and Ryan Dehoff, uh, Amy Elliott, uh, Piyush Nandwana and so on and so forth, Mike Karka. Um, so so discussion with them um, and also uh, I've seen how impactful their work is in whatever they do um, at Oak Ridge. I was fascinated when I got back and I had a a year to defend. I was pretty much determined that I I would like to go to a research lab position or do something uh, in that space. So when I did my PhD, I completed my PhD in um, May 2021. Um, I chose to do a postdoc actually. So I went to do a postdoctoral research associate position at NEXT Manufacturing Center at Carnegie Mellon. So um, I spent a year there, work on a project on uh, um, US Army Research Labs project on expedite manufacturing um, and point of need sort of scenario. And uh, Professor Bute, Professor Rollett were there as my uh, advisors. So I, I spent uh, one year over there, and then I had to figure out whether to go for academic route or or choose an industry. And I, I, I guess, I made a great decision to join EOS.
0: <laughs> and what was that like? I mean, what um, from a, um, a, a interview perspective, did you know like what? What job you were? What like what role were you looking at? Because I think EOS has a couple of different like. There's additive yes. lines. There's like the machine building yes. part. Like what exactly did you know what you were kind of going and getting yourself uh, at, in for?
1: At that time, also uh, the the need I felt was that we need to come together on terms of uh, qualifying the machines and 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 as we are discussing before making sure that they are interchangeable, the processes can repeat irrespective of who is the OEM uh, over here. So so at that time, I applied for uh, quite a few positions, uh, including uh, R&D engineer uh, and process engineering consultant. But I chose process engineering consultant uh, mainly because of the role of qualification and certification that that has been assigned here. Um, So that took me Um, It took me on a different trajectory when when I chose to go on a route of process engineering consultant. um, I was exposed to how EOS has been building their systems from 30 years ago to till date. What are the different versions have come through uh, in understanding the nitty-gritty of each and every one of those. Uh, And I support both polymers and uh, metals qualification at EOS.
0: And so, I mean, and you don't have to go into great detail, but like, what sure. do you mean by qualification? Because I think it's kind of like as a as a starting point. I think it's a catch-all for a lot of people. But like, no. when when you think about it, what 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 comes to mind?
1: So, um, my my initial breakdown of qualification and certification is when a product is qualified. When you're trying to build a product um, or a part, it is qualified because it it is meeting your design requirement, and that is as simple as it gets that all the time you produce that part and it fits to your design requirements, uh, what you have set across. When you want to certify it, you have to back those with different, um, different statistical evidence that you are submitting to a um, authority. It could be for aerospace FAA, it could be FDA in case of medical devices. Those are regulatory bodies that you seek for permission to certify that the part that you have produced meets the quality requirements, meets the uh, expected uh, specs, so to speak. So for me, qualification was how can additive parts, no matter where they are built on a build platform, it could be on the corner, it could be dead center on a single laser. How can you make sure that without testing too much, you can reliably and repeatedly say that all of these are meeting requirements. And to get to that point, whatever steps you do, it all comes down to a qualification, um, qualification umbrella, so to speak.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I mean, we've it's a it's a topic that comes up quite a bit. We've talked quite with others on on this. I mean, I think the. Conventional number that I hear often is usually qualification for a metal systems about a um, a year to eighteen months and a million and a half dollars. is that? And is that that is the, that is fair? That is
1: correct. <laughs> it is. It is a fair assessment. That is correct. And we have a GE Leap nozzle as a perfect example. Twenty fifteen, they started printing these GE Leap nozzle. Right, twenty parts they made it into one part. In 2018, they had produced 30,000 parts, and then uh, by 2021, 100,000. But to get to that 100,000 repeatable, reproducible parts, they had invested uh, millions of dollars. And you're right, it took them about 18 months to 24 months to get to qualification of their machines and lock down every single thing um, that they could control.
0: And, I mean, we had this discussion at this NIST working group, but yes. <laughs> in your mind, um, like, it, the amount of data that you could capture for one of these systems yes. is immense, right? Like, even just in terms of things, the machine operator, the laser parameters, like, you start making that list, it's could easily get over 100 variables pretty quickly. Easy. But um, is there a path to simplifying that? Is is there a a way that you, um, not getting any secrets away, but more just like how how do people how should people think about that without getting overwhelmed, right? Because we don't also don't want to make the the burden so high that you say, okay, here's a seven hundred fifty thousand dollars single laser machine. You need two people. You also need a year and a half and a million dollars to qualify it. And so, like that that may makes the bar pretty high in terms of for what you guys wanna do is sell machines, right? Exactly, exactly. And th-
1: that's how, um, For if, I, if I'm if i talking about, um, I'll, I'll answer this in two halves, like generally and specific to EOS. So generally speaking, this process takes a while because you have to set together so many aspects which are involved in qualification, right from you have manufactured a machine and did a factory acceptance, to installing at the customer side and doing a site inspection and then making the machine uh, within the specs by doing an operational qualification and then doing a part of performance qualification and then amongst this there are facility readiness uh, operator um, operator side of personnel side of things so it's a mammoth project so to speak but how can you leverage the data and make this process uh, be a little fast paced. In this context, EOS has been making the printer since last three decades. So we know by running certain factory acceptance tests that this sort of model, say M two ninety, on titanium with uh, say hundred micron layer thickness, the repeated property would be within this range. So we leverage that by by using the previous data. So to reduce the number of times you would require to run a particular build to say that this machine, uh, this SI number machine is qualified. Got it. But to understand which data makes more sense within the terabyte of data that you extract from a build is also a very, very tedious work. The moment you put in-situ aspects into this mix, it also creates its own data. And now you have tons of data and nowhere to look as a starting point, except because you (laughs) you have now changed laser power scan speed or you have kept it as is. What data from these different columns would you take to look into that? And by the time you do this, it's already a year or two year in the process, and something has changed. Something new has uh, been introduced in this mix. So, can five year old data give you a meaningful result if things are changed in terms of software upgrade, in terms of uh, new laser, or a, or a machine might have gone under a major revision in terms of maintenance? So, so it's 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 kind of a situation where where um, quick fixes have been introduced in terms of doing rapid qualification. We, we say expedite way of qualifying something um, and and that has been evidenced by use of data that okay, we will try and test only three uh, samples on the build plate and the locations would be X, Y, and Z and and we'll do it repetitively. So Oak Ridge has now adapted a situation where on every single build they make, irrespective of what they are printing, they would print a, a small witness coupon at one particular location. And they'll track that for the journey of that uh, machines, like 50 build, 60 build, 70 build, just to see from that coupon what is going on within the machine. So that's one way of understanding so there are quick fixes which you which which, which uh, we can do.
0: And so with with that, I mean, you said you work on both polymers and metals. Is one uh, yes. easier? Yes. Is one easier than than the other, or is the process the, so similar? Bo-
1: both are ac- both are extremely different. the The way you process polymer, um, it's a support free printing in in terms of polymer printing. There is no support structure um, in. You have the equal amount of complexity in polymer um, when you're looking at uh, comparison with the metal system. You're comparing it with uh, both. Post-processing of powder is altogether a different uh, ball game in terms of when you extract the parts, what you do with the thermally influenced powder. Because every layer now, your entire powder is under thermal... Uh, uh, difference right so so when I'm looking at these techniques I'm like okay this these needs to be uh, these needs to be made both of these metals and polymer techniques needs to be in a way that both are easily qualifiable and uh, so we typically do a qualification test on both our polymers and metal systems by um, three builds on three different powder lots so it's
0: sure. nine nine builds in total. Sure. Yeah. And we were talking talking a little bit beforehand about um kind of some of your involvement in standards and the importance sure. of kind of sure. the, the even right. going from a Renaissance to an EOS system yes. and and, and yes. vice versa. Like what are your what are your kind of thinkings and how are you engaged with trying to to help kind of rise the the overall kind of um adoption rate of, of additive?
1: That, that, that's a that that's a pain at this point for additive fraternity as to we have these different machines can we make use of all of those to to produce the same part irrespective of you printing it on SLm or initial or EOS or trump for instance um, so we um, um, my involvement is in asTMf 42 um, 07 06, 03 committees and we are trying to discuss as to how to minimize um, how to minimize the time it takes to qualify, but at the same time, <clears throat> the variation within manufacturer to manufacturer. What are allowable?s And what are what are something that you cannot compromise with? Meaning, you have a Gaussian profile in one of the one of the laser um, from say Renishaw, and you have a top hat in say SLM, for instance it all comes down to melt pool right so so eventually you have to understand that whether to compare machine a versus machine b versus machine c what is the minimum amount of um, tests that that are needed to say that we can efficiently produce 316 on all a b and c machine without compromising and it comes down to the powder now each machine manufacturer has restrained the way that they allow certain powder to be used. So it's going there, but it is taking time as to making sure that the input feedstock stays the same in order to compare A versus B versus C, because different laser modalities, different gas flow patterns within the build chamber, and so on and so forth. So each Manufacturer has a different signature. So we're trying to accumulate these, uh, finding out that what is the allowable difference between A, B, and C that we could, we could say uh, that is approved plus or minus 5%, plus or minus 10%. Mm-hmm. So, And it comes down to every OEM being open about it and also agree to share their data, So, sure. so to speak, yeah, so...
0: Awesome, and so uh, just a couple more questions. Um, yeah, sure. Looking ahead, we're about halfway through the year. What what's exciting? What's on your radar for the rem- remainder of twenty twenty
1: three? I am headed to MIT to give a talk on uh, on next month on about qualification on aerospace uh, parts. Um, that's immediate for me. Um, there, I am planning on talking about how aerospace companies um, are looking into qualifying parts, but with the with the amount of uh, amount of time that they have a very short span of time how can we make sure that uh, all the parts are qualified within a short span of time because the testing is what takes the majority of their time it's not about printing the part it is that getting it approved uh, to be flight ready is, is is uh taking a lot of time next time uh, I'm participating in Solid Free Form that is happening in Austin. And Form Next is also in Austin. So, so I'm excited about uh, both. Um, I'm, I'm also headed to ASTM's ICAM. Uh, so those are a couple of things on my ra- radar at this at this time.
0: Fantastic. And last question. Um sure, a little bit sure. off the off the topic. Uh, what's a book um, that's had a meaningful impact on, on on your career or your life in terms of uh, sharing a lesson or kind of just a story you like? It,
1: it's called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kuhnman. And um, that book has given me a nice perspective as to when do you actually make a decision, an informed decision versus a decision that is more coming to you naturally what are some of the areas because every other day uh, we are coming across a situation where we require um, to make some decision which is changing the course of the action so those those are those are the decisions which needs a critical assessment and reading this book uh, uh, thinking fast and slow has given me that that perspective so i think that's a good book if you're if you're into psychology as well.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining the show today. Look forward to seeing you at some of these uh, upcoming conferences and talks and all that you're doing. So thank you so much. Absolutely.
1: Thank you so much, Mike, for having me. It was a pleasure talking to you. Great discussion. Thank you so much.